Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. Did you have a band? Good or bad? It's a great band, it's a bad band, it's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what, there's music in the air. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we've got a performance from uh, one of our favorite performers in the history of Sound Opinions. He's been on the show several times. Moby never fails to bring something new to the table every time, whether it's something that he's going to say in an interview situation or, in this case, I think, a, uh, a live performance that I think surprised everybody in the room. It was a live performance in Philadelphia and, Vastly and, and pulled it off very well. He always is. But first, as always, we've got some music news. Ah, yes. Walking the Dinosaur. That would be the music industry, which is uh, stampeding like a brontosaur into the tar pit, uh, hastening its own demise. In our ongoing effort to cover this demise and the extinction of the industry as it exists today, we have a couple of stories that all intertwine, Greg. They all they all come together. Yes, indeed. It's every week there is some new development that I think is going to affect basically the future of how we listen to music, how music is distributed to us, how it's made. Part one is from Universal Music, uh, one of the big four record companies in the world. They have announced the first broad online cost-cutting move in the entire music industry. In other words, they are going to severely slash the cost of music that you would purchase digitally on your computer. Long overdue. Because let us remember, indeed. folks, that you know the production costs of a $17 or $18 CD are well under a dollar. The share that the artist gets is well under a dollar. Yeah. Where does the other 16 bucks go? <laughs> to universal music. Well, and let's throw out the notion that uh, you even need a pressing plant for digital music. I mean, it's a digital file. You don't yeah. have to go to a pressing plant to press this thing. You don't have there to get is no a retail store cost. because there is no retail right. store involved. So what Universal is going to do is they're going to slash the prices of albums like The Who's, Quadrophenia, and R.E.M.'s Reckoning. Some of the big albums in their back catalog from the 12 to $15 range down to the 9 to $10 range. Much more reasonable. Doesn't seem like a lot, but, you know, a few bucks. I mean, it's the start of something that should have been taking place years ago. One of the reasons that people aren't buying CDs in the quantity they used to is because the prices have been edging towards $20. Finally, we see a move to get the digital versions of those albums to under $10. The $10 album seems reasonable to me. People aren't buying CDs in the quantities they used to, as you said, but the head of EMI Music, which is another of the biggest four record companies in the world, Alan Levy, announced that the CD is dead, he said. <laughs> he was talking to a, a business conference at the London Business School, and uh, this guy Levy said, quote, the CD as it is right now is dead. We have to be much more innovative in the way we sell physical content. Now, I think he's kind of exaggerating there because CD sales still account for more than 70% of total music sales. At least they did through the first half of 2006. But he's making the point that it, it very, very soon in the future, he said, you're not going to 
stock up your mother-in-law's iPod. You'll still probably give her a, a CD, but nobody else is going to be buying their music that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, he might be right. I mean, I think in the hardcore collecting world of music aficionados, they still prefer vinyl. Yeah. You know, and so maybe you'll see a world where it's all either downloads and vinyl, some small segment of CDs that'll be down around 20 or 30%. But it's interesting to have one of the guys who's at, at the head of one of the companies devoted to selling these little plastic discs saying, we've got to get out of this business. Well, I think his thinking, too, is that you've got to add value to it. And you're seeing it more and more. DVDs tacked onto CDs now. You're seeing uh, internet content tacked onto CDs now. It can't just be the CD, in other words, to sell yeah. because they can already get the content of the CD on the internet very easily. So but give that, the consumer something more. Know, very little of that do you need to own on a plastic disc, Greg. Because, you know, if they're giving you videos, well, I can get those on YouTube. That's true. You know, if they're giving you extra lyrics and stuff, well, I can get those on the website. You know, yeah. what else are you going to give me on that plastic disc? Yeah, exactly. Alan Levy says the CD is dead. Elliot Spitzer, the New York State Attorney General, is saying that payola is dead. And he, one by one, he is knocking down these uh, industry kingpins who have been participating in this decades-old practice of paying radio stations to play music. In recent years, he has succeeded in getting all of the major labels to fess up and agree, yes, we did pay off radio stations to play our music. They have been fined. They have agreed to stop the practice. Now he is targeting the radio stations. And the first big fish to get speared was CBS Radio. CBS Radio just paid a $2 million fine to Spitzer, acknowledging that, yes, they have participated in payola, and they have agreed to end the practice immediately. Next up for Spitzer are the biggest radio stations in the country, Clear Channel, Cox, Emmis, CBS certainly in that category. And uh, the fact that they have admitted that they, along with the record companies, have been participating in this practice, I mean, everybody sort of knew it. It was the 800-pound gorilla in the room. Yes, it's been going on for decades, but we're not going to do anything about it. Now Spitzer has got these people on the record saying, yes, we've done it. We've got to end it. We've got to move on. You can't have payola without a payer and a payee. (laughs) So it's only fair to go after the radio stations. What we're seeing with these stories, Jim, is that there is like a speed train zipping past the music industry. It's called the digital world. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, right. And they are trying to jump. Jump aboard that train while it's going about 180 miles an hour and picking uh, up speed yeah, every five working. minutes, trying to get some money out of it. It's the last gasp attempt here, but I can see it going away very quickly. That's a good metaphor. I like your, your futuristic hobo <laughs> metaphor there. Never let it be said that we didn't miss an opportunity to gloat about the absurdity of all that. That's not paid off very well for Kurt Cobain, who uh, died in 1994, but his estate is making megabucks. Forbes magazine has come up with its annual survey of the top-earning dead celebrities, and this is a... Uh, it's a, a cheerful story. Yeah, it's They a put ma- it out every year around Halloween. <laughs> Well-timed in that regard. We have talked about this several times in Sound Opinions, Jim, um, over the years. The fact that just because you die doesn't mean you stop becoming a celebrity, stop becoming an icon, stop earning money. Elvis Presley, Tupac Shakur, you can go down the list of people who have continued to make money. In fact, sometimes, in many cases, more money in death than they actually did in life. Look this the, is the first time, though, that a member of our generation, a Generation Xer, has knocked a baby boomer off. Yes. Because, you know, you would anticipate Lennon and Presley and Bob Marley, uh, certainly, but, but not, not Kurt. 
Kurt Cobain, what happened in the last year, we reported on this story when it happened a few uh, months ago. His widow, Courtney Love, sold 20, a 25% stake in his song catalog to a publishing company, Primary Wave, for a uh, sweet $50 million. So that puts Cobain atop the dead earnings list this year. And that puts him ahead of Presley, who had a mere $42 million. I mean, Presley's the, the great <laughs> hunter. I mean, this guy, every year after year, Presley's tens of millions of dollars. The estate just continues to earn and earn. You know, Lennon's still on there. I guess he's at number five. And uh, George Harrison earned a mere $7 million in death. Lennon earned 24 Even when he's dead, Harrison can't get as much respect as John. <laughs> but the question, you know, would be when McCartney finally goes... What does he get if there's anything left after Heather? Yeah, right. Greg, that is, of course, Bono on his way not only to a Nobel Peace Prize, but uh, sainthood, if, we, if he has his way. Uh, <laughs> I swear I'm not making this up. This ran on the newswires this week. Apparently, 150 churches in 15 states are following the lead of an Episcopal priest in Maine who, uh, last summer, a year ago uh, this summer, started a service that they called the Eutucharist, which is a mass in the uh, Episcopal Church based around and using the music of U2. Wow. <laughs> I know. It's just so... You know, it's like, okay, fine. Godspell, Jesus Christ Superstar. Rock's been in church before. But the whole the whole U2 nature of this, and the, apparently a portion of the collection plate goes to Bono's campaigns to not only eradicate poverty, but to uh, eliminate AIDS. You know, he shoots high. I wonder if he had a discussion with Reverend Paige Blair, the Episcopal priest who got this rolling in Maine. See, Bono seems to have his fingers in so many pies right now that yeah. it wouldn't be, I wouldn't see it being beyond him to start initiating a church service in the name of you two. I'm sure. I'm telling you. He's, but, you know, I just am nervous about any sort of rock and roll that aspires to mix religion. I'd much rather go out and have the pagan well, uh, naked come on, ritual come in on. the woods what about, set to Slayer music. What That's about Reverend? More... What about the church services that Reverend Al Green gives in Memphis or the Reverend Solomon Burke gives in L.A.? I mean... These are pop performers who are ministering to their flock on, yeah, they, on Sundays in, in, in lengthy three-hour church services where they incorporate a lot of their vocal in. Yeah, but they don't suck. A lot of like, their vocal talent. Like Bono does. That is a band from New Jersey, My Chemical Romance, and an album called The Black Parade. It is their third album, and it, it is almost certain to debut at the top of the charts because, Greg, the kids love them. Kids love them. <laughs> That's what we hear. Love them. Now, My Chemical Romance is hardly the only group on the top of the charts right now sporting too much black eyeliner and uh, a whole lot of gothic melodrama. You know, you have Evanescence just came out with its second album and those goons in AFI. Mm-hmm. There are some differences with this band. For one thing, they're much, much, much more ambitious. 
Now, that little piece of Kurt Vile-sounding opera also includes a cameo by Liza Minnelli. <laughs> She's a fan of these boys. Went in the studio with producer Rob Cavallo when they were recording. Cavallo is best known for doing Green Day's last album, American Idiot. And there are certainly some connections between this record and that record in the sense that this is a concept album, and so was Green Day's American Idiot, although there are just as many connections to Queen, A Night at the Opera, or Pink Floyd's The Wall, all of these are things that the boys in My Chemical Romance love. And if I may just set up the concept, what we have here is a young kid whose uh, life was turned upside down by the chaos of 9-11 and this foreboding sense of doom that the world may end as he knows it. And a decade has passed or, or a couple of years have passed and he is now fighting cancer and laying in the hospital dying of cancer and looking back at a life and regretting all the living that he didn't do while simultaneously wallowing in his misery. That, I believe, is the concept. I'm telling you, kids are going to eat this up. We're going to... We're gonna, we're gonna, the next question is, why? Well, right? because because what teenager isn't angst-ridden well, and, 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 and overwhelmed with a you know, feeling of doom and foreboding and, and, and misery and the whole world is conspiring against me? I mean, you know, these are the classic teenage tropes. Here we have the crux of the debate. But, yes. But uh, we should yes. definitely play something. Let's, let's, let's play something. Here it is. It's the song Teenagers by My Chemical Romance, the the album is The Black Parade on Sound Opinions. They're gonna clean up your looks with all the lies in the books to make a citizen out of you. Because they sleep with a gun and keep an eye on you, son, so they can watch all the things you do. Because the drugs never work, they're gonna give you a smirk, cause they got methods of keeping you clean. They're gonna Gonna fit in much, kid But if you're troubled and hurt What you got under your shirt We'll make them pay for the things that they did They said That's a track called Teenagers from the new My Chemical Romance album The Black Parade Jim, you described the album very well It's an album about death And uh, with songs like The End Dead, cancer, famous last words. How can you not get in a very dark, black mood? It's a. It sounds like a macabre record, but as you can hear from that track, Teenagers, uh, even though the subject matter is dire and macabre, the music is sarcastic, uplifting. There's an energy to it that belies the subject matter. It's almost like these guys, uh, and Gerard Way in particular, are laughing in the face of death. Yeah. They know they're going down, so they say, you know, I'm going to live the last few minutes I have on Earth with all the gusto I can. I'm going to pogo. <laughs> I'm going to play the Ramones. I'm going to jump up exactly. and down in place. And that's what differentiates them from the other chart-topping bands that you cited, yes. the AFIs of the world, the Evanescences of the world, which do seem to wallow in their dire self-pity. These guys aren't self-pitying at all. 
the best moments of this record uh, combine everything but the kitchen sink, and sometimes the kitchen sink is in there too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Glockenspiels, as you said, yeah, yeah, can- yeah. fake cannon shots. The cannon kills I me. I mean, uh, you know, they've got Marshall drum beats. They've got layers on layers of guitars. And they got Liza Minnelli. Liza Minnelli. I mean, th- what could be more glam? What could be more over the top? What could be more theatrical than that? In their best moments, they really go over the top. I mean, it's yeah. it, very reminiscent of mid-'70s Queen at the height of their powers, and certainly touches of that last Green Day record, which was also audacious in the way it sort of reinvented what it means to be a punk band. I would say about half of this record works in that way. I, I think when they pull their punches and they revert back to that sort of gothic pop punk style of their first couple of records, I think they're, they're just another dull band. Uh, oh, no. It's when they go over the top and, and start you know, playing with some of these ideas of, okay, more is more. More is sometimes better. Let's go in that direction and play with the idea. Let's dance with death. Let's not wallow in it. Yeah, but I, even I think the there's songs ways... that don't have a canon or Liza Minnelli, they're, they're hard-hitting pop punk, and they're catchy. You've got to put this I, in I context. Gerard Way is citing Queen, and he's citing Pink Floyd, and he's citing Ziggy Stardust. What this is is bad out of hell for Generation Y. And I don't mean those inferior Bad Out of Hell 2 or Meatloaf's new <laughs> Steinman-less Bad Out of Hell 3. I mean the original. And what the original was was a cartoon. And I think in rock history there have been great cartoons about teenage, you know, the Wagnerian take on teenage angst. Start with Leader of the Pack mm-hmm. and go all the way up to Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness by the Smashing Pumpkins. There's always been these absurd operettas about the, the misery of being a boo-hoo, poor you t- teenager, right? And this is great. Begin to end great album. I, I had no expectations for, for it. And and even the parts that aren't silly and over the top, like you're saying, but they, they move, they kick, they have great, great rhythms and great melodies. And I, oh, I come this, on. this record really surprised you're, me. You're, you know, I, I think half of this record is very, very good and entertaining. But when they sort of are playing to the radio format, of oh, the moment, that, 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 alternative no, rock no, radio format. They're a dull band. They're you're, just, you're, you're they're just they sound like one of a hundred other bands that that are aired on alternative rock no, radio stations. No, today. you're you're taking a great club the sandwich Liza here Minnelli stuff. and That's trying what they to need peel it apart. And uh, you know, you're going to smell the bacon was a little soggy. I am Otherwise, a... it's the greatest. Cl- it's it's a concept album. Oh. How can you take it out of context? So you got to listen from beginning to end. Yeah. preferably with a black light on and a bong and headphones. <laughs> All right, that's what this record is, and it's classic. I'm, as I'm such. sorry, it doesn't sustain my no, interest so buy it, all the buy way through. Record. Buy it, burn it, trash it. That's how we rate things. Yeah. I'm saying buy this record, but only if you haven't hit puberty. You know, otherwise, you're going to hear it coming from your teenager's room. Ah, you're room. hedging your bets already. Come on. Well, no, but, but see, I, I am still mentally a 13-year-old, and so I relate. I would buy this album. It's, it's a burn it, Jim. Ah. <laughs> Listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Beneath us, you hear a track called New York, New York from Moby, a duet with Debbie Harry. We are going to have Moby in a live performance in a few seconds here, uh, an interview, an acoustic performance, Troubadour Moby, uh, in a new <laughs> guys. We're also going to have a uh, review of a new John Legend record later on in the show and a Jim DeRogatis Desert Island jukebox selection. Woo!
Listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. We are here live in Philadelphia at the Public Radio Programmers Conference with uh, our guest Moby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're pleased to have Moby here. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Moby or familiar with only aspects of his career, this man has been making music uh, since the early 80s. When I first saw him, he was giving one-man electronic shows that were sort of like Iggy Pop with a techno backing. He was, he was playing all the instruments, keyboards, samplers, drum machines, and running around like Iggy Pop on stage. Little did I know that he'd also been in punk rock bands for years prior to that. So he went from punk rock to this very severe brand of electronic music, has made records that have transformed not only radio... But at Transform Television, a lot of people may not realize that Moby's music became incredibly popular, not because of radio airplay, but through movie soundtracks and through television commercials. Personal anecdote here. I had been trying to get my wife for six months to listen to the play record, which he'd put out in 1999. Can I, can I interrupt for just one second? Sure. You know what's, what's fun? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to provide a little musical backing while you talk. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go Please for do. it. But you'll see... What you're, what you're saying emotionally is kind of neutral. I'm going to change the musical backing as you speak and thus affect the emotional quality of what you're saying, right? Very okay. good. So, well, as I was saying, six months after I had tried to persuade my wife to listen to Moby's play record, she was going, yeah, 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 whatever. TV commercial comes on, and she hears this amazing song wafting over. Now let's make it sad. Ready? Yeah. And suddenly the light bulb went on over her head. You could see the little light bulb going on. And there was a revelation. And she, she runs down the stairs and she goes, Greg, Greg, what is that song? What is that song? And she says, I said, honey, honey, I've been trying to get you to listen to this record for six months. It's Moby. It's porcelain. It's this amazing song. And she goes, Moby, I love that guy. Ten million records later. Superstar, what can I tell you? Here he is. He's now there he now go. has a greatest hits album coming out, which will sort of summarize his career uh, to an extent. But uh, it's almost impossible to get that entire career under one umbrella. But we are glad to have you here after after oh, thanks. this it's my pleasure tumultuous two decade career. So we wanted to use the uh, excuse of Go, the very best of Moby, to kind of take you through the career a little bit, and you're uh-huh. going to augment it by playing us some tunes in between. Do you want to sure. play a song first, or you want to get sure. to some chronology? I'll play, I'll play a song. Okay. Um, so I worked very hard on the John Kerry campaign, and uh, he was a guitar player. And we did this one fundraiser where we played a Johnny Cash song together. Mm. And one of the reasons I wanted John Kerry to become president of the United States selfishly is so that way I could say that I taught the president of the United States how to play a Johnny Cash song on guitar. <laughs> so I was going to taught a presidential candidate how a to senator. Play it. Y- yeah. yeah. An yeah. heir to a ketchup fortune. Yeah. <laughs> That's some bragging, That's right? something, yeah. yeah. 
So, um, but it's an audience participation song. Um, there's a horn part in the middle, and I know we're all shy, but if everyone can do the horn part in the middle, when it gets to it, you'll know what to do. Okay. Um, it's actually a June Carter Cash song mm. that she wrote for him. Okay. Mm, love is a burning thing And it makes a fiery ring Bound by wild desire I fell into a ring of fire You can sing along if you want. I fell into a burning ring of fire I went down, down, down And the flames went higher And it burns, burns, burns The ring of fire The ring of fire Now I'm thinking rather than do the second verse We should just go to the horn part Because I play like 90 seconds of songs And we can play more songs So is everyone ready to do the horn part? So, Moby, uh, on Sound Opinions, we've done this to you before, Moby, but now, having put out Go, the very best of Moby, we have got to take you through your career a little bit in between your musical interludes. There is a song that we are very upset that is conspicuously missing from... <laughs> I bet you it's the Mission of Burma cover. Uh, no, it is not. Oh, sorry. No, it is not. It is this band. Let's play this first, and then... I'd, well, how could you have left this off? So the Vatican Commandos, Hit yep. Squad for God. Yes. That you was, were, what, 18? No, I was 16. That 16. was my, my high school punk rock band in Darien, Connecticut, recorded with one microphone in a basement in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Uh-huh. And you played the instrument? I was, I was the guitar player. Guitar player? Yep. There you go. And, and did what, you have what, any what, hand in writing the lyrics? I didn't write the lyrics. The lyrics are, are really funny, though. The, the <laughs> refrain is, we're saving your souls by killing you now. Ah, <laughs> How could you have left this off the, the greatest hits collection? I know. Right? I mean, it, it, it's a natural, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it fits right in between porcelain and honey. I mean, it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but we've talked about it. So you were, you were, like us, a music geek. You lived at the record store. I worked you in the record store played for a music. Time. Yeah. What made you think you could do it? Make well, music. Uh, well, I started making music when I was about nine years old. And 
I never in a million years thought that I'd ever get a record contract, and I certainly never thought that I'd sell records. I just thought that I would be, you know, I'd work in a record store and make music that no one would ever listen to. And my, the, the first single I ever put out under my own name sold 2,000 copies, and the next single, the song Go, the, our great hope, myself and the people at the record company, was that it would sell 4,000 copies. And even that seemed almost like laughably ambitious. Like, 4,000 copies, that's what rock stars do. Like I, you know. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. any success that I've had has been a complete surprise and a complete fluke. How did you get from making music like the Vatican Commandos, hardcore punk, to making techno? I mean, you, you were making this ambitious, energetic dance music that had all the energy of punk, but it was dance music. Well, I think a big part of it was growing up in and around New York in the early 80s. You would go out to nightclubs and you would be exposed to everything. You know, you'd go to see a punk rock band at Danceteria and there'd be an electronic DJ in the basement. There'd be a reggae DJ on the second floor. So it was like everybody just listened to everything. And a lot of the, a lot of the people that came out of that scene, like you know myself or the Beastie Boys, have this very sort of Catholic approach to music. Like it, everything was okay. Yeah. So it was, just, yeah. it was a very open, experimental time. But you took it somewhere else entirely. The idea of this propulsive dance groove combined with an Angelo Badalamenti, not a sample, because you took that music that people will remember most from Twin Peaks and you played it. By taking, you mean stealing, yeah. Well, no, yeah. You, well, you covered it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you took the, on, the only reason I covered it is because the original was too slow to fit on the... Like, I wanted to sample uh-huh. it and literally steal it, but I had to actually replay it because the original was too slow. <laughs> so it's kind of like saying, oh, he didn't steal the piano, and the person's like, oh, I just couldn't fit it out the door. Yeah. <laughs> <You know. laughs> so I cut it in two. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's hear a little bit of Go. I just realized if we're going to do this chronologically, we're going to be here for a while. Yeah. Like, that, well, we're, we're at 1991. <laughs> <laughs> we'll fast forward past the duff parts. It's all right. You couldn't go to a club, though, in uh, around 89, 90, 91 without hearing that song, it seemed like. And it was a song that actually, its life was in the clubs. And one of the problems with dance music in terms of wider exposure to the mainstream was that the DJs, the guys who made this music, were relatively anonymous. You sort of changed all that. You, were, you weren't afraid about sort of putting a face to techno. And I remember that was a huge controversy. Like, this guy is like, he wants to be known. He wants to, you know, put a, a visual element to his music. Well, I think part of it was just coming from a punk rock background. And when you're playing a punk rock band, you stand on stage and you run around like a crazy person. And if you put out a record, you put your picture on the cover of the record. So it just seemed like that was the natural way for a musician to make a record, to identify himself with the music that he's making. And I had a lot of appreciation for the anonymity of dance music, but that just, it wasn't the, the ethos of the world that I came from. 
Well, there's this myth, I think, that goes around with electronic music that it's all sampled and, you know, all they got to do is loop, uh, you know, a little riff and then, you know, press a button and it's done. Well, one of my more successful songs here in the States was called Southside. And, and it's also, to be honest with you, one of my least favorite things I've ever done. <laughs> but <laughs> um, I was listening to it once with a friend of mine, and he said, oh, where did you sample the guitars from? I was like, well, I played the guitars. That's my job. He's like, what about the drums? Where did you sample that? I was like, well, I played the drums. That's, this is what I, yeah. I do. So I do it. That, that myth haunts me. It used to bother me. Now I'm just like, eh, you can't yeah. worry about it. <laughs> At least I get to make records. So There you, you go. You get used to it. Yeah. So that's, after the success of Go, you were being positioned by Electra Records. I mean, we were literally getting press releases, Greg and I, that said, Moby, face of techno. Right. Right? And, uh, and you seemed... <laughs> yes. <laughs> Nothing sells records like a bald inbred guy with bad posture. Yes. Like, you wanna... <laughs> It seemed, it seemed to me, and to many critics and fans, that, that your response was really to be as perverse as possible. You know, with, with uh, Everything is Wrong in 95 and Animal Rights in 96, you were like, I'm not going to be boxed into any genre. I'm, you, know, you can call me techno, but I'm going to do industrial rock and thrash and metal. And uh, as a result, Electro Records dropped you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. When, when the album Play came out, or before Play came out, I was a has-been. Right. Like, like when Play was released, most journalists wouldn't review it. it. I mean, I think it sold maybe like one or 2,000 copies the first week of release. I went on tour. I was playing to 50 people a night. So Play, when it was first released, it was a, a failure record by a has-been artist. Right. But, I mean, talk about the ultimate revenge. Play is now at, what, more than 12 million worldwide? Oh. <laughs> killing what? I said killing your enemies. Oh, that would be good. Oh. All right. Go the penultimate revenge. Okay. Uh, <laughs> So what, what is Play Worldwide now? Like 12 million, 14 million? No, it's, uh, just around 10 million. Around 10 million. But that puts it, Moby, in like Dark Side of the Moon, Fleetwood Mac, Rumors territory. Did you ever run into the guy from Electra who dropped you? Oh, I ran into a lot of those people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and I only once indulged in petulance. Uh-huh. Um, someone, because I, I was trying to get a record deal for Play. And I invited this A&R person over to my studio, and he came over like he couldn't be bothered, and I was playing him the music, and he was just annoyed. Halfway through the songs, he was like, okay, next, next. I played him three or four songs, he was like, okay, I gotta go. And he left, and that was the last I heard from him. Yeah. And then another band he signed was opening up for me at one of my shows. And I saw him, and I just, I, I, I still feel guilty about this. I looked at him, and I said, well, you have any regrets? <laughs> 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 Which that was that was that was small-minded and petty of me, and I still do feel kind of guilty about that. Because small-minded and petty never happens in the music industry. <laughs> no, not at all. It's, it's an industry marked by like sort of altruism and magnanimity. <laughs> right. Well, and it was a, it was a struggle to get that album played, as you said. The radio wasn't wouldn't touch it. You were a has been MTV didn't want anything to do with you. You got a lot of crap, including from people like Jim and I, about getting all this music in in sort of these non-traditional venues. Uh, you know, selling out, the dreaded selling out question. Now, there's you 2 in an iPod ad, and lo and behold, Bob Dylan in an iPod ad. You and know, Victoria's Secret. Victoria's Secret. Everybody's doing it. Uh, you know, that was the future. That turned out to be the future. I, I, I was, I, I'm proud to be the avant-garde of selling out. <laughs> 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 it was like, 
I, I, I paved the way for a lot of disgraceful compromise. <laughs> After harshly criticizing you, though, in retrospect, what you were doing was saying, the mainstream media, in this case commercial radio, since you're a musician, has closed the door to me. So I'm not going to take that for an answer. I'm going to go wherever I can. I mean, you, you've never been an opponent of digital downloading. And you were saying, well, if, if commercial radio won't play me and the commercial wants to, I'll, I'll use the soundtrack. I'll use the commercial. It was also, a lot of it was just flattering. You know, like as I'd been ignored for the few years before play was released. So I was just thrilled to have attention. At the time, you looked at it and said, well, gee, you know, Kurt Cobain never would have done this, but Kurt Cobain wasn't faced with an environment like, you know, with the Telecommunications Act. Well, also, he was attractive and he knew how to sing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if you look at the pipeline to radio, it was so narrow at that point, and it's narrower now. Well, um, yeah, I mean, 1999, when Play was released, the only music getting played on radio was Backstreet Boys, Limp Bizkit, hip-hop, and country-western. Why 10 million copies? What is it about this album that connected with people? I have no idea. I mean, it's, it's, really? it's, it's a poorly recorded record <laughs> made by a weird guy on <laughs> equipment in his bedroom in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And some of the bigger hit sing- singles sample old gospel music from 60 years ago. Yeah. So I, not exactly like a recipe for success. Let's play a little porcelain and then we'll get a new song from you. Okay. Unless you want to play porcelain, can you do... I can do it. I can do it, but it's it's it doesn't really sound so much like the song. But that's cool. Oh, okay, you can do it. So you can do. Okay. Or play whatever you want to play. Cause in my dreams I'm dying all the time. Then I wake. It's kaleidoscopic mind. I never meant to hurt you I never meant to lie So this is goodbye So this is goodbye Now tell the truth you never wanted me Tell the truth, you never wanted me Tell me Cause in my dreams I'm jealous all the time Three dozen times through the years, I've never heard you do that. That's cool. Moby is a very active member of the Internet community. He has a fascinating website. You have been very outspoken on a number of issues on your website. Most recently, a uh, rather articulate rant, I guess is the only way to describe it, or diatribe against the, our, our current president. And the liner notes on your albums have also addressed some political issues. 
But song-wise, it seems to be an area that you sort of stay away from. I've, I've tried to write political songs. I can't. If I try to write a political song, it's just strident and didactic, and no one would want to listen to it. Like so, some people, like The Clash wrote great political music. Bob Marley, Neil Young, uh, John Fogarty, Public Enemy. And like to write a good political song, you have to write something like Melanie Lay Down or Fortunate Son, where it's, a lot of it's, it, it's, it's couched in poetic imagery. Right. And no one wants to hear a song written about how the IMF needs to be more transparent. <laughs> you know? <laughs> we have one or two more serious questions to wrap up our chronology of your... I mean, the reason you're doing Go, the very best of Moby... Is because I'm old. I mean, it's like there are two types of greatest... Or three types of greatest hits. There's like the fluke... The musician has one fluke hit. Mm-hmm. Then their next two records tank. And so the record company's like, how do we milk something out of that one hit. Or then there's like the justified greatest hits, like mm-hmm. all the Rolling Stones greatest hits. And then my case where I'm, I'm, I'm just old. Oh, wow. <laughs> I've just been around for a while. And it's like, oh, I guess we have... Hits. I mean, you're not like Blind Melon. They've had like three greatest hits uh, selections. They had one song. Right. Hear. Yeah. And the guy's dead. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> if, if Cobain hadn't died when he did, if Kurt Cobain of Nirvana hadn't died, uh, people would have considered uh, In Utero a flop. Uh, you, you were in the unfortunate position of having to follow Play Up, and you didn't die. You made two really good albums since, you know, 18 and, and Hotel. They did not meet the commercial expectations of Play. Was that difficult to live with? No, because the first single I ever put out, I told you, it sold 2,000 copies. Right. <laughs> and 4,000 copies seemed an unattainable goal. Yeah. And I remember one, the label I was signed to, this tiny label called Instinct Records, and the owner of the label we were joking, and he said, boy, if you ever put out an album and sell 50,000 copies, that would be amazing, because 50,000 copies seemed like utterly, utterly unattainable. So from my perspective, any record I put out that sells more than 50,000 copies is a huge success. 10 million must just be incomprehensible. It is incomprehensible, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think it's probably a clerical error. <laughs> <laughs> What's next? As simple as this sounds, just I just want to keep making records and keep working on politics. <laughs> That's it. All right. Didn't Thank you. you. Didn't Thank you, you say your guitar teacher was obsessed with uh, Eddie Van Halen? That's why oh, yeah, you got all so, those licks. So I learned from... how to play oh, give us really, some hammer on. Some really yeah. fast yeah. stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like... hard on acoustic guitar like, yeah. like the, yeah, 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 yeah. the sustain of like <laughs> Joe Satriani ladies and gentlemen yeah. <laughs> Greg it is always a treat to hang out with Moby <laughs> came took the train down from New York to uh, do that taping with us in Philadelphia it was a real treat you're listening to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. What do we got coming up? Next up, Jim, we've got a review of the new John Legend record, which uh, debuted at number three on the pop chart, following up a three million seller the last time out. And we've got your DIJ, Jim, Desert Island oh, Jukebox. Oh, boy. That's next on Sound Opinions.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is John Legend. Maybe you felt like you were back in 1973 or so, just there for a few seconds, and that is uh, clearly intentional. John Legend does love his soul and funk from the 60s and 70s. He's back with his second record. It's called Once Again, aptly titled because uh, how do you follow up a three million selling three Grammy award-winning debut record? That's what happened in 2004. Legend was born uh, John Stevens 27 years ago in uh, Ohio and uh, toiled sort of in the background of the music industry for a number of years as a songwriter and uh, a session musician. He collaborated with people like Kanye West and Alicia Keys, but didn't really make a name for himself until that 2004 debut record, which was overseen by Kanye West. Get Lifted. Yeah. Yes. And he'd, he'd done some serious stuff, though. He played absolutely. on Lauryn Hill's Miseducation of Lauryn Hill. Yeah, the guy was clearly highly respected. Uh, he'd been uh, the director of a choir in Ohio. Uh, he knew his way around a keyboard, an excellent singer. But really, I think the key for legend is his, his songwriting ability, devising craftsmanlike soul ballads that you didn't have to be 15 years old to appreciate. I mean, he was writing for and about adults, and I think that was really the key. The song Ordinary People really sums it up, I think, for me and for a lot of people who loved that first record. But I think we should take it slow. We're just ordinary people. We don't know way to go Cause we're ordinary people Maybe we should take it slow Take it slow Oh This time we'll take it slow He was talking about everyday lives in the vernacular of people like Bill Withers and Eugene Record of the Shy Lights. It wasn't about these fantasy, crystal, bling-loving lifestyles that people couldn't relate to. It was about, you know, ordinary people. Uh, And and, and Legend really tapped in to a part of the audience, the R&B audience, that really had not been addressed in a number of years. And he returns uh, to the formula with the record once again. The key track for me, Jim, on this record, though, is, is something that sort of breaks out of the formula a little bit. He's clearly steeped in that 60s and 70s soul thing, but on the track we're going to play next called Show Me, he breaks some ground. I don't yeah. think I've ever quite heard this particular sound from John Legend before, and I think it's the standout track on his new record. And uh, let's just play it before we talk about it. It's called Show Me. It's from John Legend on Sound Opinions. Mm-hmm. 
like to know Come have a talk with me I need a sign, something I can see Why all the mystery? I try not to fall for make-believe But what is reality? John Legend, the song is called Show Me from his second album, Once Again, on Sound Opinions. Greg, I talked to uh, the former John Stevens just a couple of days ago. He agreed with you. That, for him, is the standout track on his album as well. Came to him in one burst. He said sometimes, you know, a song just comes to you and it seems transcendent. And he had been listening to a lot of Jeff Buckley and Sufjan Stevens. Mm -hmm. Legend is a a voracious consumer of music, and he doesn't want to be put into any pigeonhole. He's flattered by all these comparisons to Stevie Wonder, and let's face it, Each Day Gets Better, which we heard at the top of this segment, is more Stevie than Stevie, at his (laughs) steviest, you know. I think one thing that R&B fans are reacting to with Legend is uh, as much what he isn't as what he is. Mm -hmm. Legend is outspoken. He came right to the cusp of saying to me, I hate R&B today. I hate what's going on on the radio. It's silly. It demeans women. It's not musically inventive, and it's lyrically stultified. He doesn't like uh, disrespecting women. And I said, trapped in the closet, R. Kelly, is that what you're... And he said, I'm not naming names. But clearly, that's what he's talking about. And he's advocating a return to old school sounds. As John told me, we have all these R&B singers who want to be rappers, so they're doing the gangster pose and it's just dragging R&B down. He's an alternative. I wish there were more songs like Show Me on this record, because that really is going somewhere new. Bringing together, you know, Stevie Wonder and Jeff Buckley, it's a really good record, but it's not a great record. When he came out with Ordinary People, he was so fresh and so new, and that sound was so distinctive for its time that it couldn't help but Uh, sway some people who sort of yearned for that and maybe didn't even realize how much they missed that sound in R&B. Yeah. He's essentially repeating the formula on the second record with the mind-blowing exception of Show Me. I really think that's one of the songs of the year. It absolutely sends a chill down my spine every time I hear it. I just think he he went outside of himself, and I wish he'd traveled to the deep end a few more times in this record where he sort of went outside of his comfort zone. That said... I think he's an incredibly gifted songwriter, great melodies. Best thing I could say about his music is that it sounds like, man, haven't I heard that somewhere yeah, before? Where did I hear this before? I mean, yeah. isn't, that, isn't that a melody that was a hit 30 years ago? And you realize maybe there's little bits and pieces of those elements in the past there. I just wish he was a little bit more adventurous musically. Maybe that'll happen on the third record. When this one sells another 3 million copies, you know, maybe, or he'll, maybe he'll have you know, the license he, to do that. He's out on tour now. He's crossing the country uh, with an 11-piece band. Maybe it comes together live yeah. better more. We'll see. I think, though, in the meantime, this is a uh, Burn It record. You know, I'm going to go buy it mainly because I do think there's no real true weaknesses on this record. It's not a blow-away great record, but I think the track Show Me is a great track, and I think the rest of it is pretty darn good. So I'm going to say spend your money on this record. I 
tell your little buddy this whole island is bewitched. Remember, we were shipwrecked together. Now, the great Australian punk band, The Saints, is telling us where to go and what time it is. It's uh, Desert Island Jukebox time. Time for Jim DeRogatis to pop a quarter in the jukebox and uh, tell us what his favorite track is of this week. Well, I tell you, Greg, we're talking about this. When we were discussing what news stories to cover, there were two uh, pending reunions that we were like, well, I don't know if it's really good enough for news. One is that Ronnie Dio is back with the three guys in Black Sabbath who aren't <laughs> Ozzy. Woo-hoo! You know, Now, they made two really good albums in the 80s, and so there's going to be the Dio Sabbath, but they're not going to call themselves Sabbath. That's cool. The other thing is Genesis is returning, not with Peter Gabriel, so it's not going to be the Lamb Lies Down on Broadway Genesis, but this is going to be the Phil Collins, Tony Banks, Mike Rutherford Genesis, and I'm hoping against hope, also Steve Hackett. Now, I'm geeking out a little bit here because uh, I am a closeted uh, prog rock geek from my teenage years, although, you know, one who liked London Calling as much as Close to the Edge. Critics will go this far and say, we, yeah, with Gabriel, they were kind of okay. But, you know, there, there was no redeeming Genesis after that. That's not true. That's not true. The first couple of albums... Now, Phil Collins, granted, is one of the most egregious personalities in the history of popular music. He's just bad. He's not good, okay? Except he was a great, great, great drummer. And when he first took over... I mean, imagine this. The lead singer leaves, and the drummer says, I can fill his place. But he did a pretty good job. (laughs) Up through, I would even say, like, Abacab. I will defend Genesis even after guitarist Steve Hackett left. There was a lot of good Genesis. You know, early on it was much more... No, it's true. You're you're scoffing even... But you're, you know, then play... You should be doing a DIJ from that era. Well, no, no, no. I'm going to defend the Banks-Rutherford-Collins Genesis that's coming back and prove to you that there was some good stuff still. Phil was fine when he was just doing the vocals and he wasn't trying to be too theatrical hammy. This is a good example of... One. This is a great Tony Banks song called One for the Vines. Incredibly pretty. Trick of the Tail was kind of the big rhythmic progressive rock album, whereas Wind and Wuthering the next year kind of went back to what they were early on with lots of intertwining 12-string guitars. You're just scoffing at me. You're <laughs> ruining this whole experience for me. This is my <laughs> Desert Island jukebox, though. This is a great anti-war song. I think, actually, Banks and, and Gabriel were the closest, right? And Gabriel did that song, Salisbury Hill, which is about the messianic-like figure being pulled up into heaven. And I think Banks wrote this song as kind of a companion to his old friend. Uh, One for the Vine is about this weird messianic figure who leads the armies into war and people are killing and slaughtering each other in, in his name. And then like when everybody's dead and covered in blood and the sabers have been soiled, he gets pulled up into heaven. I think that's what happens. I'm not exactly <laughs> sure. Granted, it's probably going to suck. They're probably going to do We Can't Dance, you know. And not do this stuff. You but were just this defending is, We Can't Dance the other day, weren't you? I kind of like that oh song. This song has this great guitar tone. All right, well, there, there are bad later day Genesis songs. But um, I don't know. I'm excited. Maybe they'll be good. Maybe they'll play one for the vine, which is my Desert Island jukebox pick. Simply, though he never voiced it loud, I'm 
I just love that, man. You got your four, six, and eight string basses working on there, and you got 12 string guitars, and the the arp, and the Hammond, and the Colin Malloy, man, and the Decemberist. He was listening to that. Uh, I know it. Yeah. Well, the thank God Colin Malloy improved upon the form. Oh, just come a on, touch. This beautiful, beautiful song. Jim, uh, Desert Island Jukeboxes, <laughs> you know, that's why we have them. <laughs> We have our picadillos, our little our little flavors of the month, our flavors of the week, and that was yours, and certainly not mine. What do we got next week, Greg? Next week we've got an interview with uh, DJ Shadow, a true hip-hop visionary. Jim, you and I are both on record as not being overwhelmed by this new uh, DJ Shadow record. Nonetheless, I found this one of the more fascinating interviews we've done in months with a figure in popular music, just because of his viewpoints on where hip-hop is going, where it's been, and also his defense of what he did on this new record. I think made me at least reconsider some of it. That's going to be next week on Sound Opinions. On the way out, Greg, we have some thank yous. Tori Malatia is our executive producer. Todd Bachman is our managing producer and director. Matt Fingus Spiegel is our producer. Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn are our associate producers. Legal help is from Dino Armiros. Technical assistance is from Joe Dassault. Jim Russell is the man at American Public Media. And his colleague Amy Hyatt Blatt over there really helped us bring the whole uh, Philadelphia Moby thing together. So thank you. We'll see you next week. I'm going to play some more of this Wind and Weathering album, Greg, because it's a great record. And I'll be heading out, Jim. And uh, then there were three is good. Have and a even, nice like time said, listening to that record by yourself. Parts of Abacab. <laughs> <laughs>